something a little bit different this morning. Instead of an Old Testament reading, I decided to uh, take on a second New Testament reading, Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 19. And uh, then the sermon text for today will be 1 Timothy 1, verses 12 through 17. And so, first, turn to Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 19. And here is a passage that tells us all about the conversion of Saul, who is also called Paul. And I think you will see why I've chosen to read this passage today alongside our sermon text. Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Hear now the reading of God's most holy word. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. And he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. Let us go now to our sermon text for today, which is 1 Timothy 1, verse 12 through 17. This is Paul speaking, who was in Acts chapter 9 called Saul. And he's writing to Timothy, his co-worker, saying, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, 
that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life, to the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So far the reading of God's holy word. May He add His blessing to the preaching of it this morning. Here in this passage that we are considering today, Paul reminds Timothy of his former life in Judaism, how he once persecuted Christ's church, of his conversion, and of his appointment to the office of apostle. His presentation of his testimony here is very brief, you'll notice. It is only a summary of the story that is found in Acts chapter 8 and following. And here in 1 Timothy, the apostle does not speak of these things in detail, but he only makes mention of them. We should remember, though, that Timothy knew this story very well. And indeed, the whole church by this time would have been aware of the story of Paul's conversion. So Paul only gives a brief summary of it here in his letter to Timothy. But the question we must ask is, what was the purpose of this? Why did he interrupt his charged Timothy, which was to confront false teaching within the church in Ephesus, to tell of his conversion and his appointment to the apostleship? What is his purpose here in interrupting this charge to Timothy to make mention of his conversion and his appointment to the apostleship? You will notice that Paul returns to his charge to Timothy again in verse 18, saying, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, etc. So he is not finished with this charge. He is not finished saying to Timothy, this is what you are to devote yourself to. And neither is he done with his rebuke of false teachers. In verse 20, you will notice, he mentions two in particular, Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom he had handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. So again, the question we should ask is, what is the purpose of this passage that is before us today? How does Paul's brief presentation of his testimony fit within the argumentation of this letter? What is his point? And I think three reasons can be identified for this apparent interruption. Paul reminded Timothy of his testimony, one, to defend his apostleship, two, to present a pattern of true conversion, and three, to give all glory to God. Brothers and sisters, first of all, recognize that Paul speaks of his conversion to defend his apostleship and his authority as an apostle. As I have said before, apostles, they had a special kind of authority in the early days of the church. They were eyewitnesses to Christ's resurrection. They were commissioned by Christ Himself to serve as His special representatives. And this special authority possessed by the apostles was validated by signs and wonders. These apostles and the prophets with them worked miracles as a proof that they spoke with divine authority within the early church. You can read all about this for yourself in, in the book of Acts. Now, Paul was an apostle, but I think you would agree with me that he was an unusual one. He was not one of Christ's original disciples. 
He did not walk with Jesus during His earthly ministry as the other apostles did. In fact, what we have learned here is that He violently persecuted the church at the beginning. And so He was appointed as an apostle, but He was appointed after all the rest. You can probably imagine how the opponents of Paul would have used all of this against him. No doubt these false teachers would have questioned his legitimacy by highlighting his violence against the church and his late arrival to the apostleship. Can't you see this playing out in the early church? Here are these false teachers teaching false things within the church. Paul confronts them and then they are going to reply in one way or another. And one way might have been this to say, but who are you really? You didn't walk with Jesus. In fact, you persecuted the church at first, violently so. They would have called into question his legitimacy by highlighting these things. It is not surprising then to see Paul defending his apostolic authority in the letters that he wrote. For example, when he wrote to the Corinthians, he listed those who had seen Christ in his resurrection. And then at the very end of that list, he said, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. And this was Paul's constant approach. He admitted that he was unworthy to hold the office. And yet at the same time, he insisted that he did indeed hold the office by the grace of God. I cannot take the time in this sermon, but it would be a worthwhile study to read through the book of Acts, especially chapters 8 and following, and to consider all of the ways in which Paul's apostleship was validated. Uh, We have read from Acts chapter 8, and we see clearly that the circumstances surrounding his conversion validated his apostleship. His conversion was marked by the miraculous. I think that is important for us to see. Why was his conversion so miraculous? He saw a vision. He was blind for a period of time, and he was healed not of his own strength, but by the hand of another, by the strength of God. Why was his conversion marked by the miraculous, well, among other things, to validate his his apostleship? Uh, The miracles he performed also validated his apostleship. They functioned as signs. His reception by the other apostles and the church at large validated his apostleship. Paul did not go it alone, but submitted to others. He submitted to the church at large and the other apostles. And so too his faithful gospel ministry and his willingness to suffer for the sake of Christ validated his apostleship. When we read the book of Acts, we see clearly that he was not in it for selfish gain. He suffered greatly as an apostle of Christ. The point is this, though Paul was an unusual apostle, he was truly an apostle, and he was received as one by the early church. The apostle Peter even made mention of Paul in 2 Peter 3, 15-16. And I want you to listen to what he said. The Apostle Peter, writing to Christians, said, Count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you concerning the wisdom given to him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks of them, of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. So Peter, that very prominent apostle, referred to Paul as our beloved brother. He commended his writings as wise, 
Though he admits that there are some things in them that are hard to understand, and we all kind of smile when we read that, don't we? We go, yes, I I know what Peter means. There are some things in Paul's letters that are difficult to understand. Uh, But notice that he says that those who are unstable twist those things as they do the other scriptures. The Apostle Peter puts Paul's writings into the same category as the other scriptures, even the Old Testament scriptures. And so we see that the other apostles, with Peter himself being preeminent, they viewed Paul as an apostle, a fellow apostle. They viewed his writings as being authoritative, having divine authority, being divinely inspired. Again, the point is this, Paul was an apostle. He saw the risen Lord, and he was commissioned by Him. In fact, in order to demonstrate this to the church, the Lord called Paul through that faithful brother Ananias. The Lord did not just appear to Paul, but instead the Lord appeared also to Ananias, saying, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, so on and so forth. We just read the account of that. Why, why was this faithful brother Ananias involved? I think also to validate the fact that Paul was truly an apostle. The other apostles recognized this, as did the church at large. But his authority was often questioned by false teachers, just as it is to this present day. If you're familiar with critical scholarship at all, you probably know that the authority of Paul the Apostle is still questioned to this very day. False teachers to this day will try to pit Paul against Jesus. They will try to pit Paul against the other apostles, claiming that they somehow have different religions. You know, they're promoting different religions, but their views are are purely baseless. The New Testament scriptures instead present to us a harmonious view concerning the relationship between Paul and the other apostles and Paul and Christ himself. Here in 1 Timothy, Paul defends his apostleship when he says, I thank him who has given me strength. Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointed me to His service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed from me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Do you see, He is saying, listen, I am a servant of Christ, this being a reference to His apostolic ministry in particular, and He is saying that it is Christ Himself who has appointed me to this service. All of a sudden, we begin to see that whatever these false teachers were saying within the church of Ephesus, they did not speak with the same authority that Paul spoke with. And I think that Paul is reminding Timothy and also those to whom Timothy was ministering of this very thing. I want you to notice three things briefly about what Paul says here in verses 12 through 14, which I have just read. One, notice that Paul does not deny his past, but readily admits that he was formerly a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent of Christ's church. A blasphemer is one who speaks evil of God and of the things of God. And this Paul did when he opposed Christ and his church at first. He was really opposing God and and Christ. Persecuted, uh, the, the persecuted church, rather. He was, he was opposing the persecuted church. He was, he was zealous in his persecution. He saw to it that many were imprisoned. Some he had killed. He harassed the early followers of the way, as they were called, from town to town. And these early disciples of Christ knew Paul, who was then called Saul. Uh, he was known by that name mainly. And they feared him. 
Truly, he was an insolent opponent, an arrogant and violent oppressor. And Paul did not deny this past, but readily admitted that it was all true. He opposed Christ and his church at first. Two, notice that Paul points to the mercy and grace of God as the ground of his apostleship. Indeed, all who were appointed to the office of apostle were appointed by the mercy and grace of God. Think of Peter for a moment. And think of his shortcomings. Peter denied the Lord three times when the pressure was on. I'm sure that you remember that story. And yet the Lord had mercy upon him. He graciously restored him. And so it was with Paul. There was no room for boasting, therefore, for any of these apostles. He knew that he was undeserving and that he was appointed to the office by the mercy and grace of God alone. His first words are, I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord. It was Christ who appointed him to, his serv- to the service despite his terribly awful past. And he says that he received mercy and that the grace of our Lord overflowed for him with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. In other words, the strong faith that Paul possessed and the fervent love that he had for God and for the, brev- for the brethren was an undeserved gift from God. And three, Paul says that the Lord judged him faithful and that he received mercy because he had acted ignorantly in unbelief when he persecuted the church at first. There are some who are perplexed by these words that I have just read. When Paul says that the Lord judged him faithful and showed him mercy because he had acted ignorantly and in unbelief. Some imagine that Paul here is teaching that God showed him mercy and grace only because God found him faithful and only because he acted ignorantly and in unbelief. And if this was what Paul means, that he was shown grace because of something deserving in him, then he would here contradict things that he says elsewhere concerning the free and unmerited grace of God. Are you tracking along with me in what I'm saying right now? Are you following me in terms of how this statement or these statements from Paul can be misunderstood. But upon closer examination, we see that Paul clearly states in this passage that all is owed to the grace of God alone. His faith and His love were His only because, verse 14, the grace of our Lord overflowed to Him. Indeed, everything good in Paul, including his faithfulness, is owed to the grace of God. Truly, God judged Paul faithful because God had, by His free grace, made Paul faithful. And so what is Paul's point, though, in making these remarks? Why does he say in verse 12, I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to His service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. What, what does he mean by this? Well, notice that Paul is not here speaking of his salvation, but he is speaking of his appointment to the office of apostle. He is speaking of his appointment to the service of Christ. And what is required to serve Christ in an official capacity, either as an apostle or as an elder within Christ's church? Among other things, ministers of the word must be found faithful. That is exactly what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 1 through 2. This is how one should regard us, speaking of ministers of the word, Apollos and Cephas and himself being 
some of those ministers of the word. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. That is what Paul says. He highlights the importance of faithfulness quite often when speaking of ministers of the gospel, ministers of the word of God. This is a prerequisite for ministers of the gospel that they be found trustworthy and and dependable. Though the word faithful is not used in the qualifications for elders which are listed later in this epistle, faithfulness is certainly implied. In fact, I think the term faithful could be used to summarize the qualifications that Paul gives later here in 1 Timothy. What is required for a man to hold the office of elder within Christ's church? Well, in brief, he's to be found faithful in all things. And I think it is interesting also to note how often Paul emphasizes faithfulness when commending ministers of the word to the church. He commanded Epaphras to the Colossians, saying he is a faithful minister of Christ, Colossians 1.7. He said the same thing about Tychius, calling him a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. And Onesimus was also called a faithful and beloved brother, Colossians 4.7-9. Indeed, it should be the objective of every Christian to be found faithful, constant, trustworthy, and dependable, But it is a requirement for ministers of the word. May the Lord say to each and every one of us, when we stand before him on that last day, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. But I am saying that this is why I think Paul emphasized his faithfulness. As awful as his sins were against Christ and his church at the beginning, the Lord judged him faithful and thus appointed him to the office of apostle. But even this faith and faithfulness were gifts from God. God's grace was truly lavished upon Paul. But what are we to think of Paul's little remark, I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. Well, let us think about the sins that Paul committed prior to his conversion. They were truly heinous sins. You would agree with that, wouldn't you? By his own admission, he was a blasphemer. That's a big deal. He was a persecutor of Christ's church. He was an insolent, an aggressive opponent. And do not forget about the qualifications that Paul will soon lay down for elders. They must be faithful, as we have said. But among other things, he mentions them being above reproach and not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome. And I would imagine that some question Paul's credentials, saying, how could someone with a past like yours be appointed to such a high office in Christ's church? And the answer that he consistently gave was this, By the mercy and grace of God alone. I have been renewed. I think Paul would emphasize that. I have demonstrated this renewal over a long period of time. And perhaps he would even say concerning my former sins. They were truly heinous, I admit it. But I did commit them being zealous for God and the things of God. I was ignorant. I was ignorant. I was not committing these sins out of a a hatred for God and and the people of God. But I hated these Christians out of ignorance because I did not understand the gospel. And now that same zeal that I possessed when I persecuted the church, that same zeal is is present within me 
to promote the church and to further the kingdom of God. Now that my eyes have been opened, I was ignorant in my sin. In a sense, all sin is sin. And we know that the wages of sin is death. But it is also true that we may distinguish between sins. The scriptures do. Some sins are more heinous than others. Some sins have a more severe consequence in this life. Some sins are committed very intentionally, while others are committed unintentionally. Some sins are disqualifying for ministers, whereas others are not. And here Paul seems to be clarifying that although his former sins were truly heinous, he committed them truly believing that he was serving God and furthering God's purposes. He was a blasphemer but did not know it. He was a violent opponent of the church, but he sincerely believed that he was offering up service to God. This does not make the wrong right, but it does help us to understand Paul, doesn't it? He was, in fact, always faithful. And he was always zealous to serve God, but he was ignorant at first. He was blinded by his sin until Christ graciously removed the scales from his eyes. And this is what Paul seems to be drawing our attention to in this passage when he says, The Lord judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, and I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. So why did Paul make mention of his former life as a persecutor of Christ's church, his conversion, and his appointment to the service of Christ? Well, the first thing that we are saying is he did this in order to defend his apostleship against the critics. He is here confronting false teaching within the church of Ephesus, and certainly those false teachers would have pushed back. And here Paul is defending his apostleship and the authority that he possesses as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Secondly, and I think this is even more important, Paul gives his testimony to present a pattern for true conversion. Paul presents his testimony to present a pattern for true conversion. Stated differently, Paul's own conversion was to be viewed as typical. You might be thinking to yourselves, that sounds very strange. Uh, Paul's conversion was anything but typical. It was quite extraordinary, involving visions and supernatural occurrences. And, and true, in, in that sense, in the details, in the specifics, it was far from typical, but was extraordinary. But in another respect, Paul's conversion was typical. He was living in sin and in darkness. He had a prideful and self-righteous heart. He was an enemy of God, though he did not know it, until the Lord graciously revealed Himself to him humbled him and removed the scales from his eyes so that he might see the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Doesn't that sound familiar to you? In this sense, Paul's conversion, though it was extraordinary in the details, it, it, it was typical. It was spectacularly typical. What he experienced is what we all have experienced if we are in Christ, though the details certainly differ. In fact, this is precisely what Paul says in verse 16. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost of sinners, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. In other words, why did the Lord convert me like this? Well, He is saying that His conversion was to be viewed as typical it was meant to put on display the perfect patience of Christ towards sinners, even vile sinners, 
as he was. As I have said, all who are in Christ have experienced what Paul experienced, though probably in a less spectacular fashion. You too once walked in darkness. You were blinded by your sin. You were puffed up with pride. And then in a moment you were humbled. Your eyes were opened to the severity of your sin and to the glorious grace that is found in Christ Jesus. And having been humbled, you were drawn to Christ and you believed upon Him. And having believed upon Christ, you were received by the church through the waters of baptism, just as Paul was. And from there you began to grow and to serve the Lord in one way or another for the advancement of His kingdom. You have experienced the same thing that Paul did. In this way, Paul's conversion is a pattern for true conversion. And I want for you to recognize two vital components of true conversion. One, true conversion involves a true realization of one's sin. And two, true conversion involves a true appreciation for the grace of God that is bestowed upon us in Christ Jesus. Clearly, Paul understood that God's grace is glorious. He says so in verse 14. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Grace is an undeserved favor. Grace is a gift. By God's grace, Paul had faith and he had love. And he speaks of God's grace as overflowing. God's grace is not meager or stingy. It is overflowing. It is super abundant. That is what Paul confesses here. But before we can comprehend the superabundance of God's grace, we must first comprehend the horror of our sin against God. And I wonder, does that sound overstated to you? To speak of sin as a horror? I hope that it does not. Our sin is truly horrendous. We have failed to love God as we should, and we have failed to love our neighbor as ourselves. Add to this the sins that we have actually committed. Truly, we are rebels who deserve the judgment of God. The judgment of God who is pure, right, and perfectly just. And so I do wonder, do you see your sin as horrendous? I ask you this, not to drive you from God and to despair, but to urge you to run to God through Christ because His grace is overflowing. Paul saw God's grace as superabundant only because he first knew that his sin was horrendous. The two go together, don't they? Look at verse 15. There Paul says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. When Paul says that this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, He is referring to a saying that was common amongst the early Christians. Evidently, it was common for Christians to say, perhaps they did this in worship or perhaps they did this in their personal conversations, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. This is how they spoke to one another in the early church. This was a kind of creed or confession that they used, a very brief one. Paul is here saying... This saying is good. It is true. It ought to be accepted. It ought to be used by the people of God. Now, where did this saying come from? Well, the first part is certainly based upon something that Christ Himself said. Do you remember that episode that is recorded for us in Matthew chapter 9, Mark 2, Luke 5, where Jesus is criticized 
by the religious leaders of his day for eating with tax collectors and sinners. Do you remember that story? What is it with this Jesus? He's not so much associating with us, you know, the religious and the pious ones. But what is it with him? He's associating with just kind of the outcasts of society, the, the people who are, are corrupt, they're sinners, they're vile. He's eating with them. What was his reply to those prideful religious people who saw themselves as righteous? He, he said to them, listen. Well, he did not say listen. He said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came in... I came not to call the righteous, but sinners, he says. This is why I came, not to call the righteous, but sinners. Uh, this teaching of Christ is reflected in the first part of this saying. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save what? To save, to save sinners. He came for this purpose, to seek and save the lost, Luke 19.10 says. And so, it is a good... and saying that is worthy to be accepted. This was his mission. The second portion of the saying, of whom I am the foremost, is the invention of the early church. But Paul agrees that this portion of the saying is also trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. What does this mean? One, Christ's purpose for coming into the world was to save sinners. You and I hear that and we say, of course He did. That's the most obvious thing in the world. Well, it's the most obvious thing in the world to you. It's the most obvious thing in the world to me. But it's not obvious to everyone. In other words, He did not come primarily to teach. He did not come primarily to serve as a moral example. He did not come to... Uh, do any of that, as so many will say, even within the so-called Christian tradition. Instead, He came for this purpose, to rescue men and women from sin and from the effects of sin. He came to atone for sin. This is so important for us to realize, even though it's common knowledge to you and me, it's not common knowledge to everyone. He came into the world to save Sinners. Two, if one thinks of themselves as righteous, then Christ is of no benefit to them. That is the point of that passage that I cited from the Gospels just a moment ago. No one is righteous, no, not one, but many think that they are righteous. And if someone thinks they are righteous in and of themselves, then Christ is of no benefit to them. They cannot be saved. Christ came to save sinners. And that is why he ate with tax collectors and sinners. They were sinners and they knew it. Whereas many of the Pharisees, on the other hand, were sinners, but they knew it not. They thought of themselves as righteous. If anyone is to come to Christ truly, they must come to him as the sinner that they are, and not as if they were righteous. Three, the phrase, of whom I am the foremost, means, I consider myself to be the worst of sinners. Notice that Paul took this phrase to himself. When Paul thought of his own sin, he considered himself to be the foremost or the chief of sinners. And I do believe that many Christians are tempted to come running to Paul's rescue here when they hear him say this. 
when he adopts this saying as his own. They, they're tempted to come running to Paul's rescue saying, no, Paul, you, you really weren't so bad, right? In fact, you were probably very righteous, Paul. There are certainly worse sinners than you. Or maybe others question Paul when he takes this saying to himself, thinking, yes, Paul said this, but he probably didn't really believe it, you know. Certainly Paul knew that there were other sinners who were worse sinners than him. But I want you to briefly consider three things. One, remember that Paul's sin really was great. It was truly heinous. He persecuted the church. Christians' lives were completely ruined because of what he did. Some were killed. Stephen, the first martyr of the church, was stoned to death while Paul, who was also called Saul, gave his formal consent. See Acts chapter 8, verse 1. In fact, it is not hard to imagine that Paul really considered himself to be the foremost of sinners. Can you imagine what it would be like to go on living for Paul as an apostle of Christ after his conversion with all of that on his conscience? The things that he did were truly heinous. So I am not surprised that Paul was truly willing to take this this trustworthy saying to himself and to say, I am the foremost. I am the chief of sinners. I persecuted the church of Christ at the start. I put men to death and I put men and women in prison. I believe that he is sincere. Two, it is not unreasonable unreasonable for any Christian to sincerely believe themselves to be the foremost of sinners. Even if they have lived a relatively good and wholesome life. And by this I mean, I am much more aware of my sin than I am aware of yours. Or at least I should be, right? For every one sin of yours that I might be aware of, I am aware of a hundred of my own. Or at least I should be. Is that true of you, brothers and sisters? Are you more aware of the sins that are in your own heart and mind, the sins that you have committed, than you are the sins of your brothers and sisters around you? If the answer is no, then something has to change. But... To say, I am the foremost of sinners, it can be said sincerely because I know my own sin. I don't know all of yours. And I know that indeed in the eyes of God I am a vile sinner. I was prior to coming to faith in Christ, but I've been cleansed and I still struggle with sin even to this present day. Three, as we mature in Christ, we should grow more aware of our sin and not less. It is a strange phenomenon, I think, As we mature in Christ, we actually sin less and less. But at the same time, we are aware of our sins more and more. So that those who are mature in Christ say with complete honesty, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. As I have said, Paul's conversion is set forth here as a pattern for true conversion. We are not truly converted unless we are truly humble concerning our sin and grateful for the superabundant grace that is ours in Christ Jesus. I still have not really answered the question, why does Paul insert his conversion story here in his letter to Timothy? I haven't really gotten to that yet. What does his conversion have to do with these false teachers and the charge that he was delivering to Timothy to deal with them? You know, Sometimes we read Paul and we think that he goes off on huge tangents, you know, that are 
kind of uh, completely tangential. They, 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 they don't line up with his reasoning. I, it's not Paul who uh, is not reasoning clearly. It's you who's not reading carefully. In fact, I, I think that is the problem. There is a reason why he inserts this here. Let us think about it for just a moment. One, can you see how Paul's testimony would itself counter the errors of these false teachers? Can you see how Paul's testimony itself would counter the errors of these false teachers? These false teachers were mishandling the law of Moses, remember. And instead of using the law to confront men in their sin and thus to drive them to Christ, they were consumed with speculations about myths and genealogies. I think it is safe to assume that instead of confronting men with their sin and urging repentance and faith in Christ, these false teachers were claiming to have some special kind of knowledge gained from their experience with the law of Moses. Paul's conversion is a reminder that true conversion involves turning from sin and to Christ. And the law of Moses is to be used to show us our sin and to drive us to Christ. These false teachers understood neither the law nor the gospel, therefore, their message was powerless to save. Paul's testimony itself would confront these false teachers with this reality. Two, Paul's testimony would have also reminded Timothy to be appropriately gracious with these false teachers. What did pastor just say? That Timothy should have been gracious with false teachers? What is he talking about here? But think about it. Think of it. Paul did not tell Timothy to cast these men out of the church instantaneously, but what? He was to charge them not to teach any different doctrine. These false teachers were to be exhorted. They were to be warned. Do not teach different doctrine within Christ's church. So what was the goal ultimately? What were Paul and Timothy to aim at in regard to these false teachers? Repentance was the goal. Repentance was the goal. If they refused to repent from teaching another doctrine, then they would be like Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom Paul handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Should they not repent, that would have been the result. These, if they did not turn from their error, were to be put out of the church. But Timothy was to begin by urging these persons not to teach any different doctrine. And how valuable it would have been for Timothy to remember Paul's story as he ministered to these individuals. He was to remember that Paul himself, Paul, the great apostle himself, was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent of the church. But God had shown him mercy. God was kind to him. God appointed even this man, Paul, to the apostleship, for he acted in ignorance and I would hope that you would agree with me that there is a great difference between a false teacher who teaches different doctrine because he is ignorant and a false teacher who teaches different doctrine knowing that he is doing so and for selfish gain. There is a big difference between the two, isn't there? If the man is faithful, he will turn from his way and he will right the wrong. But if the man is faithless and self-serving, he will persist in his error to his own ruin and to the ruin of others. These two types must be dealt with differently, and I do believe that the reminder of Paul's testimony would help Timothy to discern the appropriate way. I think this was a reminder to Timothy to be gracious, to seek repentance and rest restoration, 
to, to remember that some of these men were teaching what they were teaching, not because they were rebels in their heart. They might have sincerely believed they were promoting truth, but they were teaching what they were teaching because they were ignorant. Repentance was the goal. Grace may have been needed with some of them. Three, Paul's testimony concerning his former sin and the superabundant grace of God that was shown to him would help Timothy to maintain a kind and patient disposition not only towards these false teachers, some of whom acted out of ignorance, but towards all the saints in Ephesus who were struggling with sin. A minister of the word must deal with sin within the Christian congregation. Sin, be it moral failure or false teaching, must be addressed. It cannot be ignored. The whole church must deal with it. But pastors have a special obligation to deal with it. But we are to do so patiently. We are to do so patiently and with grace. Listen to 2 Timothy 2.24. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. This does not mean that there is never a time for firm rebuke. But even if a rebuke is in order, patience is required. Listen to 1 Thessalonians 5.14, this being addressed not just to pastors, but to the Christian congregation. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. That's one of my favorite verses, in fact. I, I take it to myself as a pastor very often. There is a time for admonishment, for rebuke. There is also a time for encouragement. There is, of course, time to, a time to come alongside and to help those who are weak. But patience is to be demonstrated in all of these things. It's true of the entire Christian congregation. It is especially true for ministers of the Word of God. One of the worst things that can happen within the heart of a pastor is for him to forget his own sin and to lose sight of the grace of God as he ministers to others in their sin. Christ said, Or how can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. That is Matthew 7, verses 4 and 5. You will notice here that Christ does not say, Do not be concerned with the speck in your brother's eye. He does not say that. But rather, what does He say? First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. When you take the log from your own eye first, brothers and sisters, you will gain a heart of compassion for your brother or sister who is also struggling with sin. Pastors must deal with sin within the Christian congregation, but they must be patient, loving, and kind. And if they are to maintain that disposition, they must never lose sight of their own sin and the superabundant grace of God that has been shown to them. These false teachers needed to be corrected in Ephesus Indeed, they may have been deserving of a firm rebuke from Paul and from Timothy. But Paul reminded Timothy that he himself was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent at the start. But God 
was merciful to him. Brothers and sisters, what I have just said about the heart of a pastor applies to you also. Do you consider your own sin and the marvelous grace that has been shown to you when relating to one another? Or have you developed a judgmental spirit? I think this can be applied to relationships that exist within Christ's church, but also to relationships within the home. Husbands and wives, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Parents, I might say the same thing even to you. Do you do this for your children as you raise them in the instruction and discipline of the Lord? Do you discipline them with a judgmental spirit or... Do you discipline them in love? Do you shower them with grace? Brothers and sisters, there is one last thing that needs to be said concerning the reason that Paul gave his testimony here. And it is simply this, to give all glory to God. Look at verse 17 with me very briefly. Here the passage concludes with this wonderful doxology. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Brothers and sisters, when the law and gospel are faithfully proclaimed, it is God who gets the glory and not man. And conversely, when the law and gospel are distorted, it is man who gets the glory and not God. Truly, brothers and sisters, we are sinners saved by the grace of God alone. To Him be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for sending Christ who came into this world to save sinners. And may it truly be the opinion of each and every one of us that, that we are the chief of sinners. Lord, reveal our sin to us. Again, not so that we might run away from you, but so that we might run to you through faith in Christ Jesus seen so very clearly that your grace is super abundant. Your love is extravagant. We thank you for setting your love upon us. Father, I do pray that we as your people would be a humble people, that we would walk humbly before you, and that we would walk humbly with one another. Father, we do pray that within your church uh, that sin would be dealt with, that it would be driven out of our own hearts and even out of this congregation, false teaching along with it, Lord, but make us patient and kind as is becoming of Christians who've been saved by the grace of God. Father, we pray that you would work this spirit within us. Strengthen your church so that you might get the glory. We say this in Jesus' name. Amen.